HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren, with my co-host, Joe Salonia. And on today's episode, we have Peter Reinhardt, an award-winning author and pizza expert described as the Gandalf of pizza, a full-time baking instructor at Johnson & Wales University, and a philosopher of life adjacent to pizza. He's also widely acknowledged as one of the world's leading authorities on bread. He's the author of 10 books on bread and three books on pizza, including the James Beard award-winning book cookbook and award-winning Bread Baker's Apprentice and American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza, and the founder and the host of the popular video website, PizzaQuest.com. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, man. It's been a long journey. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about doing this show together for months and months, and I feel like we finally connected. Yes, yes, I think. Yeah, man, I got to to know more about you, man. Your (laughs) resume is quite impressive. Uh, you know, in the end, it's all about, it's, for me, it's all about bread and pizza and the, the kind of can boil down to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing I think I've always, as a girl from Brooklyn, I've always imagined having a pizza expert on this show and talking about cheese and pizza. So Peter, you're like the super perfect person. And I know Joe is a diehard pizza fan. So this is going to be uh, just a lot of fun today. Well, if you're from Brooklyn, then every person you know is a pizza expert, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so much pizza. Super yeah. True. I mean, uh, is there a place in Brooklyn that you would give a shout out to, or are they, or would you say most of them are just very good and you can't, you can't pick one? I, I, I don't know if I can pick one. First of all, it's been a while since I've been there. There's, you know, obviously some new players every day. There's a new player on the on the block. Um, uh, I always defer to Scott Weiner when it comes to you know pizza in Brooklyn and pizza in New York because he keeps me abreast of things and. About three years ago, he led a little group of us from uh, Heritage Radio Network on a on a crawl, a pizza crawl, starting on the Lower East Side and ending up in Brooklyn. Um, and to be honest mm. with you, I don't have my list in front of me of where we all went, but we ended up, you know, again in Bushwick, but not at Roberta's, but at the other pizzeria in Bushwick that uh, is getting a lot of notice. And I've blanked out on the name. I don't remember if it's Ops or whatever it was. We ended up there and it was really darn good. Yeah, and I was going to ask you. I was going to put well, you yeah. on the spot about Roberta's, but that—that's all good. I, I mean, it's good pizza, you know. Well, you can't go wrong there, you know. And uh, 
But really, it's hard to go wrong at any pizzeria in Brooklyn. We even, you know, got to the uh, uh, what's it called the Spumoni Gardens, you know, uh, and uh, L&B Spumoni, which is the Sicil- famous Sicilian place. But we went to about two or three other uh, Sicilian style places. And I have to say, each one was different. It's not like there's one kind of Sicilian pizza. There's like however many pizzerias that serve Sicilian, there's that many Sicilian style pizzas. And they're all, when they're done well, they're all really, really good. Oh, they put yeah. the sauce on top of the cheese or the cheese on top of the sauce? How does, is that, is that a thing? Does you know, you, you, it, it you think that it? there would be some kind of like, you know, rule, but it really, they all make up their own rules. So some call it the upside down approach, you know, where they put the cheese, the, the cheese on first and then the sauce. But, um, but then just when you think you've got a rule, then there's somebody else breaking the rule and saying, nobody tells me how to make my pizza. I, I do it my way. And, uh, mm. and, and I still want to call it Sicilian pizza, or I still want to call it Neapolitan, or I still want to call it New York style because I'm from New York and I do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There are these styles, right? There's, 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 there's like families of, of different kinds of pizza now that would even, I think your average pizza fan could almost try to define now, right? I, I remember about 20 years ago, uh, David Rosengarten had a wonderful you know, quarterly newsletter or every two months, a newsletter with, you know, where he spotlight things. And he did a whole newsletter episode or issue on pizza and he uh, it was the first one I ever saw kind of break it down into categories. And his categories then were, were pretty good. They were general. There was like Neapolitan. There was Neo-Neapolitan. There was New York. There was Sicilian. And then there was everything else, you know, Americana. And, um, and now since then, those four or five categories have been subdivided into about 20 other categories. So there's like, there's, there's not only ne- Neapolitan and Neo-Neapolitan, but now there's Neapolitan-ish. And then uh, and the commentators just keep adding, you know, new nuances to the discussion. And it's not like there's a rule. The rule is, that however, we whatever helps us to understand and get our head around this growing global sort of expansion of pizza. I mean, pizza is taking over the world. It was always popular, but now it just seems to be out of control. Is there one though you go to school for in Neapolitan style? It has to be certain flour, a certain tomato. Buffalo yeah. mozzarella only. The oven has to be meeting specs, and, yeah. and is that the neo Neapolitan or is no? That no, the, that you, you, what you're describing is the Neapolitan. The true Neapolitan style would be, you know, and they about forty years ago, uh, a marketing team in Naples of all places, you know, they they said we've got to preserve this method of pizza, so they came up with the Vera Pizza Napolitana rules, which included. You know that to call your pizza a true Neapolitan pizza, it has to be made in a in a wood fired oven at at least eight hundred degrees. It has to be made with um, a double zero flour. It has to be made with tomatoes from uh, Mount Vesuvius, uh, the San Marzano tomatoes. You know they came up with a, with about six or eight rules that, and then you had to get certified by a master pizza maker to be able to say that you are making a true Neapolitan pizza. Well, it turned out that you know a lot, a lot of people in America did get certified. Not all of them were making great pizzas. And there were a lot of other places that said, I know how to make this pizza. I'm not going to get certified. I'm not going to play that game. And their pizzas were as good as anything you might get in Naples. But, uh, and, and even in Naples, there's, there's pizzerias that break those rules and don't want to play by those rules. So it was a cool idea. And the purpose I think was noble in that, that they've got this classic technique. We should at least preserve the the, the sort of the bones of that technique. But then 
you know, within the craft itself and the art. And I think that's really what the bottom line of all this is, is that we're really talking about a craft and an evolving craft. It's not just, you know, sort of it's been set and it's always going to be this way. It's constantly in flux because new artisans and new craftspeople are coming into it and they're finding that it's not just the rules. It's what you do with those the tools of the trade, the, the flour and the cheese. And yeah, yeah. If I can make a great pizza with an Italian double zero flour, maybe I can make just as good of a one using an American flour or a Canadian flour, or, you know, and it doesn't maybe even have to be double zero. These, they start to, to tweak the rules and mm. find that again, uh, there's more than one way to the mountaintop in the end. Wow. Right all. <laughs> I didn't even realize there was, what do you think? Uh, I'm getting hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Agree. Um, well, I, I imagine in the cheese world, it's very similar. You know, there's got to be, you know, there's there, there there are the defined types of cheeses, but then within those defined types, there's got to be people who are saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna play with those rules and and do it a slightly different way. You know, I, I don't know, I'm guessing, but I would think so. That's why I want to talk to you guys, you know, about cheese because cheese is such an important part of pizza. But um, uh, I think in any craft, frankly there are levels of, you know, sort of, as you, as you drill deep into that craft, you'll find that there's, there are rules and then there are rules that are meant to be broken. Mm-hmm. Like the flavor rule. I think that's what I was hoping you would go on about the flavor rule too, because I know like, yeah, yeah. About like what's this about is for pizza, like between Parmigiano and Pecorino Romano and shredded versus grated. And I was kind of yeah. impressed. Like, you yeah. Know, like, so what is the flavor rule for you in that respect? Well, I guess you can break down to two. There's two fundamentals when it comes to pizza, in my in my opinion. Number one, pizza, with all the complexity that we just talked about, you know, over the last five minutes of what all different styles of pizza, really, pizza is as simple as it comes. It's just dough with something on it, and and dough with something on it can be called pizza. It might be called focaccia. It might be called uh, in in another culture. It could be a naan bread with garlic butter on it. Dough with something on it is a type of pizza. And so pizza, sort of, we think of pizza now as a very specifically sort of Italian-themed dough with sauce and cheese or, you know, with one or the other. But but in general, categorically, it's just dough with something on it. And then who decides what goes on it is really the person making the pizzas. Uh, so that's number one. And then number two is all these other rules about how to make the perfect pizza and how to make the proper pizza and all this, you know, it boils down to despite the Naples rules and what we call the, the rules of the pizza police, the only rule that really matters to, I think, a pizza person who's a craftsperson making pizza is the flavor rule, which is this, flavor rules. <laughs> In other words, if it tastes good, then don't tell me I can't do it. And, mm. and, that's, and I get emails all the time from people uh, asking, uh, you know, they come up with the method they want to try and they would say, am I doing something wrong? Am I breaking a rule? If I make my pizza this way, I don't see it in a book like this. And I go, well, how does it taste? And they say, it tastes great. And I said, well, you pass the most important rule, which is the flavor rule, flavor rules. And so I just keep defaulting back or punting back to the flavor rule when it comes to how do you do it? And then all the other rules that exist are just techniques to help you get good at making the pizza that tastes really, really good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a subtle thing, right? I mean, like, like cheese, you have just a few ingredients and it can go in many different directions, right? Right. I mean, is there a rule that says you can only use mozzarella cheese on a pizza? Uh, 
you know, if you're from, uh, if you're doing the true, pure Neapolitan margarita pizza, you use bufala mozzarella, or you can use fior de latte, which is a cow's milk mozzarella, and it should be fresh, not dried, et cetera, et cetera. But is that the only way to top a, a cheese pizza? No, there's, and it doesn't have to be mozzarella. What about the zillions of other cheeses? What about cheeses that are not even cow's milk cheeses or, or sheep's milk cheeses, but are, or buffalo cheeses, but are coming from a camel or something like that? If it's, if it's cheese and it melts and it tastes good on the pizza, I think you can use it. Mm. Mm. I love that. Big controversy today, by the way, as I say those words, uh, it's making me think of the fact this is now there are non-dairy cheeses, right? There are cashew milk cheeses and vegan cheeses. And, you know, there's a lot of people, pizza purists, who feel that it's uh, an adulteration to try to put something, you know, something that's not a traditional cheese or classic cheese on top of a pizza. But again, you have to then invoke the flavor rule. If, if that vegan cheese tastes good on the pizza, then you can use it. If it doesn't taste good, if it doesn't work, then that would be the reason to eliminate it, not because it's not made from classic milk. Right. Yeah. I mean, vegan pizza, that that like hurts my heart slightly, but I mean, there are vegans out there that need to eat pizza. So, you know, that has to happen. But um, so what do you tell people is like the uh, the best first step to their own pizza quest? Like, is it like just finding key ingredients or is it like learning to, to make pizza dough first? What's like the, the ideal first step, you think? That's a great question because, you know, you can start at a different number of places, but I think the key to a great pizza. And when I wrote my first pizza book, which is called American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza, the, the 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 original title of the book was My Search for the Perfect Pizza. And of course, the publisher wouldn't let me use that title because it was too long to fit on the back spine of the book. So they said, we got to come up with a, sh- a short title. So they came up with American Pie, uh, which is really not what the book, it wasn't only about American pizza, but they thought that was a clever title. So they came up with that. And then we they let me keep the subtitle. And that's really what the book was about is is what it is, the book was was my search, or what turned out to be sort of my quest for the difference between good pizza, of which there are thousands and thousands of pizzerias making good pizza. All pizza is pretty much good if you don't burn it. Uh, you can hardly screw up dough with something on it if you you know don't don't uh, uh, basically overcook it. But um, but then there were a few places, and I wrote this book uh, almost twenty years ago. Uh, back then, there were maybe only a few dozen places in the United States, and there were, and if you add Italy and a few, there were you know a number of others, but there were still a handful of places that were making pizza that was so good that it wasn't just good; it was it was great. And by great, I finally came to un- to understand the word great in this context as meaning memorable. It was memorable, and it was like so good that you couldn't wait to go back. You couldn't wait to bring your friends, to bring your family members, you know, to, to impress people and say, this, I found the place. I'm obsessing over this place. And so uh, there were a few places like that. There weren't hundreds of them. There were a few. Now, fast forward 20 years, and r- literally there are hundreds and maybe even, you know, more than a thousand uh, pizzerias in this country alone that are doing pizza of that quality. So the purpose of that book was to find out what is it that the great pizzerias were doing the memorable pizzerias were doing that was differentiating them from the pack. And ultimately the first thing that differentiated them was they all had a great crust. You can't have a memorable pizza without a great crust. 
And surprisingly, because it's not that hard to make a great crust, but many places just had a good crust, a serviceable crust, because their focus was more on the toppings. And, you know, they really, they, they obsessed over the tomato sauce. It was their grandmother's tomato sauce, or they had the different things that connected them to it that made it important to them. Uh, but the quality of the ingredients on top or coming up with clever toppings, creative toppings, truffles and foie gras and all sorts of other stuff that would kind of set it apart was, was something that chef-driven pizza restaurants were doing. But ultimately, if the crust wasn't great, then the best you could hope for on that pizza would be that it would be good and interesting. But interesting is not the same as memorable. And so uh, I find that, uh, you know, to me, I would say it's an 80-20 rule. 80% of the of what makes a pizza memorable is the crust. 20% is the toppings. Now, I took Jeffrey Steingarten, the, the great food writer from Vogue magazine, on a pizza hunt back you know, when, when I was working on this book. And we went to DeFaris, the famous DeFaris Pizzeria in Brooklyn, which is, you know, being sort of touted as one of the, the last of the great, you know, old school pizzerias that everybody had to go to. You had to make a pilgrimage to DeFaris. And we went there, we went together and in the car ride over, he said to me, this time I got to warn you up front. He said, I, I'm really hard and fast about this. If it doesn't have a great crust, then forget about it. I don't care how good the rest of the pizza is. I'm not going to be in love with it. And he said, and I consider like the crust 90%. So he had a 90 to 10 mm. ratio rule about what to find a great pizza. And when we had the pizza that day uh, at the forest, I thought, well, you know, this sauce really is good. There was something about the sauce that really popped in your mouth. Uh, kind of like the way Raoul's, you know, pasta sauce is better than other brands of pasta sauce. It was really good. And he had, you know, everything about the pizza was terrific, but the crust really wasn't memorable and we both noticed it and but i didn't say anything i want to see what he said and he said oh, this pizza doesn't impress me very much and i said why not and he says the crust that's just it's not crisp it's not it doesn't have any snap blah, blah. so i said i agree mm. um and i called a friend of mine and i said what's going on I, this is supposed <laughs> to be like the life-changing pizza and he said well did you did you have them put it back in the oven and do the rebake and i said what do you mean the rebake ah. he said the forest, what you have to do with the forest is you, you get it by the slice. You don't buy the whole pie. You get it by the slice and you tell them to put the slice back in the oven and it, and store in the rebake that the magic happens. And I go, geez, huh. man, why didn't you tell me that before I wasted a whole trip to Brooklyn? You know, I live in, in North Carolina. Um, uh, nobody told me about this. Now, I'm, I'm, I'll never have to learn that lesson again. But the thing was, is that uh, it's true That's, that pizzas that, you know, come out of the oven, you know, right out of the oven whole. Within five minutes, the crusts are going to start to get soggy, and and so the best way to get that that wonderful, memorable is snap in the crust is to throw that slice back in the oven for a couple of minutes to just recrisp it. And so, mm-hmm. so it might have it might have passed the test if we had known that before we went there. Uh, but that's just an example of how important the crust is. So back to your question, Kara, which is you know where do you start? First, you have to understand how to make a great crust, and and there's only a few basic rules to that. One of those is make the dough at least a day ahead. Mm. Or if you're going to make pizza the same day, then do what Chris Bianco does, who's one of the greatest pizza makers in the world right now. Uh, he makes his, starts making his dough early in the morning mm. and he gives it all day to ferment. Yeah. And unless the dough has that long, slow fermentation, the, 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 the activity, the fermentation activity and the enzyme activity that happens in the flour itself doesn't have enough time to release the flavors trapped in the flour. 
So as a bread making instructor, you know, at Johnson Wales University, the first rule I teach my students is that the, it's not a rule, it's sort of like the mission. I say, your mission while you're in this bread making class is to learn how to evoke the full potential of flavor trapped in the grain, in the flour. That's where it all starts. And you do that through applying the, the craft of bread making, which includes understanding fermentation. So, and the key to fermentation, it's not rocket science. It's just let, let time do its thing. You have the right balance of ingredients in there. And then one of those ingredients is time. And it takes anywhere from 12 to 18 hours for the enzymes, which are sort of the least known part of the flour to do their trick, which is to break apart the starch molecules, the starch of the flour, of which, of which the flour is like anywhere from 80 to, or, to, or so percent starch to protein. Um, it breaks apart the starch molecules and and releases the natural sugars that are in those starches because that's what a starch is, is just complex sugar. But it takes time for those to be released. So that's just knowing that, just the one trick of taking uh, like an old Betty Crocker pizza dough from you know one of those 1950s cookbooks and turning it into an artisan pizza dough is to make, instead of following their instruction, which is to give it like, you know, an hour and a half to rise and then, and then shape it and then give it another hour and a half and then make your pizza, just make the dough a day ahead, put it in the refrigerator and the next day start making your, you know, your pizzas, divide it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That one trick alone can take an average dough and turn it into a potentially great dough. So that's, you know, that's, that's the first start of a, of anyone who's on this quest to make a great pizza for themselves is start with the dough. And then after that, you know, you can get into the, down the rabbit holes of sauces and cheeses and and oven temperatures and things like that. I I tell, I'd vibe with that. I, I vibe with the whole idea of the of the crust being everything. And crust means not just the crust, like bread crust, like the, the outside. It's the whole thing, the dough. Yeah, you know how crispy it is, um, and, and a little bit of a chew to it. Yeah, whether it's got a little darkened color, it, 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 the crispy snap going right to the middle. You know, as opposed to the the a soft middle flopping down and then the sauce and cheese hits you later. Exactly. Exactly. And of course the different styles of pizza, some, some styles are thicker crusted than others. So, you know, you have to kind of follow the, 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 the steps and the principles for that style to get mm. the maximum flavor. But in the end, it all comes down to evoking the maximum flavor, the full potential of flavor that's trapped in the ingredients, starting with the crust. Mm-hmm. Joe, have you made your own pizza dough before? I, you know. Oh yeah. I only, whenever I make pizza, I, I do what Peter's saying. I make it the day before or very early in the morning for the evening. Um, I actually follow, uh, I, I want to, I just bought Peter's book. So uh, I'm going to, or one of his books. I bought, um, Peter, what t- you could tell me which one I bought. The one with the, the woman on the cover with the, uh, holding the loaf of bread. I bought that one. Oh, that's, that's the bread baker's apprentice. That's my bread yeah. book. Yeah. That's, so, that's- uh, I'm going to dive into that for sure soon, but what I usually refer to is I, I usually do Jim Leahy's no need recipe, which is pretty yes. high hydration and a long rise. Yes. And I've made bread with his, that recipe. I've made Detroit style. I've made pan pizza. I've made yes. the, the, the hot pizza oven, pizza Ola style. Um, and it always comes out really great. It's a great recipe and a great technique. And uh, Jim gets a lot of credit and deserves a lot of credit for, for essentially applying the same concept of long, slow fermentation uh, and a small amount of yeast and um, and a wet sort of sticky dough uh, to, to making great French bread in a, you know, in a uh, cast iron pan or something like that. And 
uh, and but the thing that makes it work when you kind of deconstruct the process is is that it's 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 allowed to sit overnight, usually at room temperature. It doesn't even have to go yep, in the room temperature because there's such little yeast in it. It's got so little yeast that it can operate slowly, so the yeast doesn't use up all the sugar. It doesn't eat the sugar and and turn it into alcohol, um, which could happen if you let the dough over ferment. Mm-hmm. But by using a small amount and then giving it time. And the enzymes have a chance to catch up and do their work. And that's kind of like, I think, in the last 10, 15 years of both pizza and bread communities understanding the process itself, enzymes have come to play a much more important role. It's not like you have to add enzymes. The enzymes exist within the flour themselves. Um, There's uh, both enzymes that affect starch and there's enzymes that affect proteins. Uh, And uh, they're there. And if you if you feel that your flour is lacking in some enzymes, they can take barley malt or bar, barley flour, malt it, sprout the barley, and uh, and activate. It's loaded with with um, amylase enzymes, and they add those enzymes into the flour to give it more of a the the sweeter browning qualities that properly fermented flour will have. So again, it's all a balancing act between time, temperature, and ingredients. Uh, but time is one of the ingredients. And you can actually control the whole process by controlling both the time and the temperature. You can you, you use a cooler temperature and, and extend the time, or you can use a warmer temperature and accelerate the time. And it's finding the, the proper balance uh, wow. between that and its effect on the ingredients that ultimately determines whether you're going to make a great loaf of bread or a great pizza crust or just an average or even an over-fermented version. It's, it's, it's Kara, doesn't it sound like you just described almost like cheese making a little bit there? In a way, too, right? It's With the amylase and very. The it's very enzymes. similar. Yeah, right. I'm. I'm really fascinated by how much of this this vibe is like. You know, just like so, Peter. You talk a lot about philosophy in pizza, and I feel like Joe, you're you're mentioning it here too. Like, there's just this way of like thinking with fermentation, going with it, being patient, and then also like just the energy around everything you're making with your hands. It's it's really cool to see like something so simple like pizza, like cheese, can be something more. Um, I, I just, I, I, Peter, is that what how you feel about pizza and your pizza quest? Is that what you mean when you when you talk about, like, your quest for, for things? Yeah, like on my website, Pizza Quest, we even have this as sort of a subtitle. Um, you know, well, we have a couple of subtitles. And one is sort of a, a, the, uh, let me see, we say uh, a search for self-discovery through pizza. But then it's really then the next mission statement beyond that is is it's a celebration of artisanship wherever we find it because the the the, the principles that drive great pizza making or great bread making as we've just been discussing them apply to other crafts other artisan crafts cheese making being obviously one of them beer making is very prominent these days it's you know winemakers it applies to everybody who's in fact fermentation is really the great umbrella over all of this. And so bread making and pizza making and cheese making, they all fall under the umbrella of fermentation. So when you go to a, like an event like the fermentation, uh, what is it called? The fermentation festival in uh, in Wisconsin, the firm fest, they call it, you know, um, they have crafts, people of all different types of fermentation. They uh, uh people doing mezcal whiskeys. We've got people doing you know, cheeses and bread and you name it. But certainly in Wisconsin being the cheese, you know, epicenter that it is, uh, there's a lot of focus on, on cheese. What I find is that cheese making 
is every bit as fascinating as bread making and dough making, maybe more so. It's more complex. It has maybe more stringent rules of engagement in terms of how sensitive the ingredients are to subtle variations in temperature and the introduction of certain, you know, um, microbes and this and that. So you really have to, you have to be much more meticulous. I started out as a cheesemaker 35, 40 years ago, thinking I wanted to become, you know, a cheesemaker. I was living in, in Sonoma County, California. There was a great Portuguese cheese guy named Joe Matos that was around the corner. We used to buy his cheese all the, all the time. And I said, you know, I want to get into cheesemaking. I had access to some really good milk and uh, thought, oh, I'll open a little, little cheese creamery. And then when I found out how stringent the rules were to be able to do it right, and, and, and first of all, to get approved by the Board of Health, but also to make sure you didn't ruin it and screw it up. And, and these same kind of principles apply to winemaking and beer making, whereas in bread making, there's much more leeway for being a few degrees off. There was, you know, it was much more tolerant of human error. And since I didn't have the precision skills and the scientific drive back then that, that kind of came later, um, you know, I went for bread. I said, I can do this much easier without all the rules. I can get the Board of Health to let me open a bakery before I can get them to let me open a, you know, a cheese creamery. And so I went that direction. But I never lost my love for cheese. I just never was able to drill deep into cheese the way I, I've been able to do with bread. Uh, and that's why I love talking with you guys. Oh, my goodness. Who would have thought that cheese would be the, the tougher one there? Um, uh, I think that's uh, that's really <laughs> cool to hear, actually. You've done it all. Yeah, we're kind of goofy people, usually. So it's <laughs> it's kind of fun to hear that. But we're all, you know, all of us who get into these kinds of things have, we're kind of goofy in our own way. We're, we're eccentric. Because, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like becoming a computer programmer or something where, you know, this is the future. This is like, this is this, this is like going into the future by by going back into the past. We always say that the, the future of bread lies in its past. And I think that's true with, you know, all the great crafts, especially anything that that's driven by fermentation. You know, it's, it's ancient. It's ancient. And we're still as, as ancient as it is. And as long as it's been around, we're still finding new ways to peel back the layers of that onion, you know, to get to the core of it. Yeah, totally. Well, so that's awesome, Peter. Okay. We're going to, we're going to do a quick break with that sentiment because that was, that was very cool. Um, Hey everyone, you're listening to cutting the curd. I have Peter Reinhardt with me and we will be right back. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm here with Peter Reinhardt, masterpiece, pizza maker, bread expert. I'm also here with Joe Salonia, my buddy, my co-host, and we're just stoked to be talking about pizza. 
Um, next up on this half of the show, we're going to talk about pizza trends, pizza expos, and just uh, the never-ending quest for delicious, awesome pizza and the cheese that goes with it. So uh, actually, I'm going to throw it over to Peter now because I'm curious. I, I always hear about pizza expo now, and I want to know what makes a pizza expo. What, what is cool at pizza expo now? I just came back from Pizza Expo about three weeks ago. It was held in it's held in Las Vegas every year. There's a smaller version of it held in Atlantic City on the East Coast um, in the fall, which is about a third of the size of the Vegas Expo. But in Vegas, about ten thousand pizza freaks show up. Many of them are in the industry itself. They're there to make deals with their suppliers and to see some you know see competitions and and kind of keep up with how this fast moving category of and craft, but then there's also the public shows up because it's a chance to come in and meet the great pizza makers and do a lot of tasting. And so we're in the convention center in Las Vegas, 10,000 people a day coming through this place um, about, I'm, I'm not sure how many hundreds of booths of every kind of equipment and, and ingredient and, and uh, boxes and, you know, also POS systems, business systems, everything, you know, to help you become a successful pizza operator. And, and some amazing pizzas. And one of the things that I like about going, because I'm not in the pizza restaurant game anymore. I'm a consultant. I go in and help them fix their doughs when they call me, you know, because sometimes that's all they need is just to get their dough to another level. And that's my specialty. So Can I, I ask get, you about that yeah. a little bit right there? Like, because I live in northern New Jersey and there's, there's just like a lot of, there's a lot of good places, but there's a lot of bad places. And it's all the dough usually. Yeah. What's, what's the problem you see? Uh, with the dough that what's what's the is there a common denominator where you're fixing the same problem with many of them it's hard to say because it, it depends i usually the first thing i'll ask them is you know what tell me your process and sometimes the process is is that they're just not giving enough time to the dough to unwind mm. those those complex flavors or sometimes they're not baking at a hot enough temperature or uh or they don't have control of their environment you know so some days are hot some days are cold sometimes their oven is just not the right oven for the kind of pizza they're trying to make. So mm. it kind of depends. All of those things are factors, but you know, most of the time and, and in New Jersey, New Jersey is like New York, you know, the, the folks there in the pizza business take pizza really seriously. And there's a lot of pride. Um, there's a number of styles of, of pizza that come out of Jersey, including like the, the, the tomato pies of the Trenton area. And, and then the, most of the Northern Jersey pizzerias are more in the New York pizza style. And in the Southern Jersey area, they're a little bit more uh, uh, like Philadelphia, Philadelphia and Southern Jersey are kind of like, you know, closer to allied than the way that Northern Jersey is to New York. Um, and then there's the, you know, there's, there's so there's, the, there's this, this pride. And in fact, a lot of Jersey itself is becoming almost like as important a moniker as New York for pizza. Like you say, I make Jersey style pizza. The best pizzeria in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live now is called Gino D's. And it says, you know, on, on the sign Jersey style pizza. And he's so mm. proud of having a Jersey style pizza. And so I asked him, you know, what is it that makes a Jersey style? What are you doing that makes a Jersey style? And he says, it's because I'm from Jersey and I'm making <laughs> pizza. And so for him, it's about, it's about you know the identification of this place that in his mind you know his connection to pizza is that that the people of that area uh, I think yeah. the other thing he said was we make it with love you know not everybody says that about their cooking but when he says 
we make it with love. You know, you can feel it. You can feel the passion when he even says the words. He's not just spouting words. He's feeling them as he says them. And so there's that kind of intensity, I think, with, with that style. So I, I don't think that anybody who's not making great pizza in Jersey is going to last long uh, unless they do get it fixed. And sometimes it could be the day, you know, some days are maybe better than others. Sometimes you can't train your staff to do what you want them to do. There's one person there who knows how it should be, and but they can't get buy-in from the team. Or if they're not there on the day, you know, on their day off, things don't, don't, don't go right. But if there's a, if you have a pizza there that you think, uh, you know, isn't meeting the mark, uh, geez, do me a favor and tell them to call me. <laughs> I, I will. I, I, I find like it's – Because we can it's, usually it's, fix it. I feel like the, the 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 subpar pizza places are perpetuating themselves because people they don't know the difference anymore because then they're comparing it to the subpar to the subpar to the subpar, <laughs> and then out of those they'll have a favorite and they're all just not hitting it. And then they're, they're lucky if they find the the good one. It might be luck. They're not well, really food, well, they're not really foodies, you know. Do you have any Joe where near where you live that you would rate that would f- kind of meet that criteria that we talked about earlier of memorable pizza? Place oh yeah, that, that you just, obsess over. I, I'm still dreaming of it. I went to Raza in Jersey City. Just oh, uh, Raza, yeah. So now she comes. Yes, wow. Yeah, Raza is the poster poster boy of today. You know, it's the the, the yeah. Dan Richer is killing it there in Jersey City. Um, uh, about 20 years ago, the the, the place everyone was buzzed about was in Phoenix, Arizona, called Pizzeria Bianco, Chris Bianco's place. Oh, I want to go there. And and That's... the highest compliment somebody can get today is to be called the new Chris Bianco. And I oh, think that. Pizza, uh, you know, Rasa Pizzeria is kind of the new Pizzeria Bianco. Well, I've not had both, but Chris Bianco looks like a wizard. I mean, that just he's. I watched his. I've been following him a long time too. Yeah. and I've not been to Phoenix. He he is for a long time has been the standard bearer of sort of establishing this this movement of what we're now generally calling artisan style pizza, meaning that there's a person behind it, you know, who's who's really t- taking the craft seriously and uh, and is and creating pizzas that. Are, they just change your mind about what pizza can be. So the yeah. first time that I ever ate a pizzeria Bianco, you know, over 20 years ago, I was with a group of people. And when we left the restaurant, people were shaking their heads and going, I didn't know pizza could be this good, this much better mm-hmm. than what I grew up with. And it was that noticeably great. And it was all about the crust. I mean, the toppings mm. were terrific, but it was all about the crust. There was a snap, there was a creaminess, but uh, beneath the, the, the snap, there was just something that that you knew it as soon as you bit into it that this is on a different level, and I yeah. think that's what everyone's shooting for now. And more and more places are doing it. And uh, Raza is one of those places that's setting a standard. And yeah. one of the things he's doing differently than a lot of than even Chris Bianco is he's doing it with a sourdough crust, mm-hmm. and that's a huge trend right now. You're going to see this trend get bigger and bigger in pizza. Uh, Anthony uh, Mangieri at Una Pizza Napolitana in in uh, in the village uh, is also, he's been doing it for 20 some years and was just recently cited as having maybe the best pizzeria in the world. Um, he was, he's always done his with a natural sourdough starter, but uh, until recently yeast has been the default fermentation, you know, source, the leavening source. Um, and now uh, more and more pizza makers because they're, they've kind of surrendered to the craft itself and they've been captivated by this whole idea of natural fermentation with sourdough starters more and more are going that direction and Dan is one of them. And so it's just going to keep growing and growing. And it brings another element to the 
to the, the, the quality of the crust. It brings a complexity of flavor that you can't get through just yeast fermentation. Ooh, mm-hmm. I want to try that. Carol, we're going to go there. <laughs> I want to guess. Tell me if this analogy holds. You'll, you'll, you'll know this because you're, you know, you're in the cheese world. Um, I would think one analogy would be the difference between a, um, uh, a cheese made from, from raw, unpasteurized milk versus cheese made from pasteurized milk. And, and because typically the unpasteurized milk has a lot of biological activity going on in it, uh, whether you add anything to it or not. And so, you know, the, what, as somebody from outside the cheese world, just sort of, we look at it superficially, we hear uh, raw, raw milk cheese is on another level. It's kind of like the sourdough bread of cheese making. Would that be a fair analogy? pretty close I, I, I mean yeah joe joe might yeah. something you know it, it depends on who the yeah. cheesemaker is i think it really comes down to that but uh, uh joe will probably tell you that raw milk is uh, you know the best idea i think it is definitely a quality you want to have in your cheese but i think you can also get away with a really good pasteurized cheese it, but again it goes to the cheese recipe itself i mean what do you think joe absolutely yeah I, I, what you said, you know, you can just, because something is raw milk doesn't mean you're going to, it's, it's going to be a superior flavor profile. I mean, I, I think you're, behooves you to, if you can make it in a world where that's allowed and you can go for it. But, um, there is, there's a beauty to having pasteurization, I guess, you know, you can control things and, exactly. and you know, and, and have more consistency, uh, raw milk, you're more, you know, living up to many other elements. And and it would I would think it would take maybe a little bit one more level of skill you know to make sure that you can do it on a consistent basis. Everybody can get lucky once in a while, but can you do it day after day after day? And and so you could say the same thing about uh, you know a pizza crust. A, a pizza crust, if you use sourdough starter, it doesn't mean your pizza crust is automatically going to be better. It just has the potential to be mm-hmm. more complex. But uh, but most of the great pizzas that exist are made with yeast. Peter, I was going to ask you, uh, is this sourdough recipe in your latest Pizza Quest book? Is it is like, did one of the pizza luminaries get that recipe into the book by any chance? Um, my last two, my very first book, uh, American Bite, did not get into sourdough pizza because that was 20 years ago. And nobody except, well, it was just about then that Anthony Mangieri just started coming out and doing it. But, um, but the last two, which is one's called... Perfect pan pizza, which focuses on pizzas made in pans, like Detroit style and Sicilian stuff, uh, and also the new one called Pizza Quest, which which showcases thirty of the best pizza makers, you know, in America, and takes their ideas. Both of those books do have te- uh, recipes and formulas for how to make a sourdough pizza dough. In both books, I have I think four or five pizza dough recipes. Most of them are made with yeast, but then there's one for those who are willing to kind of jump into the deep end and do sourdough, then they have to know, number one, how can I make a sourdough starter? Uh, or if they don't have one, you know, or can, can't borrow one from somebody else, then how to make it from scratch and then how to keep it alive and perpetuate it. And so, yes, um, I, I feel like you can't really do a, a new pizza book today without including s- sourdough because it's the future. Like I said, the future lies in the past, but um, there's a reason why it's coming back in a big way because when it's done well and done right, uh, it creates a flavor profile that's just, again, one level more complex than you can get to any other way. Yeah, I, I really, I think that's very important. It, it almost sounds like one of your pizza commandments, 
because I, I think you had that. It, maybe this was in the last book. Maybe it was a different book. But um, I, I really enjoyed reading the Ten Commandments of Pizza. And I, I found that um, I'll read number yeah, eight. That's in the new book. That's, that's in the new book. Okay, yeah, good. Okay, cool. Um, Love rule number eight. Yeah, I, I like number eight. Yeah. So I'll read that to the listeners. Uh, number eight of the Ten Commandments of Pizza is a recipe is a template, a guideline, but it is not law. Understand the letter, but follow the spirit. So I thought that was that was very cool. And then I'll just read number 10, and, and you can elaborate more on the commandments. Number 10 was, tradition should be honored and respected, but as a verb, not a noun. Petra tradition is constantly expressing itself anew in the ever <laughs> now. I mean, this is like the Tao of pizza. It's so cool. How did you get to this we, point? That's it. It's the mm. Tao of pizza. Yeah. That, maybe we should have called the book the Tao that's of pizza. That's a good title for a book. That would be great. That could be the title of my next book. Thank there you, you. Grab that one. <laughs> Um, but yes, uh, well, the, you know, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with my my own personal background. I, I got into uh, cooking and baking as an outgrowth of ministry. I was I was living in a semi monastic community in California um, that and you know studying theology and and training to become a priest. Uh, when but I also had this background prior to that of you know cooking and having a, a hippie restaurant back in the early 1970s in Boston. And, and so somehow the food and the spirituality kind of wove together. And before I knew it, my ministry had started expressing itself through, through cooking. And, um, and so, and I, and, and in the community I was in, you could become, you could be married, you could have a family. And so my, my wife and I were both co- good cooks and we opened a cafe in uh, Forestville, California, in, in Sonoma County, and we made our own bread as well as do it all our own home cooking there. And somehow the bread, not knowing that that this was sort of run off and have a life of its own, the bread got such a following that we ended up having to eventually close the restaurant and go full full fledged into baking and into bread. And and at that yeah. point, um, I started writing about it. And and so my first book was the name of the bakery was called Brother Juniper's Bakery, um, and we called the the subtitle was slow rise as method and metaphor. And so that, that subtitle, again, the subtitles are always like the real title of my books. The subtitle really said it all. The, the whole, the whole thing was driven by the idea of slow fermentation, creating better quality bread or slow is better than fast. And so that became the driving metaphor of every book I've written since 13 books later. That's really what all 13 books are about is is these values these sort of universal spiritual values that that uh i think in, add to a, a more enhanced and fulfilling life ultimately the real the real themes of all my books is is the quest for a fulfilling life and and we use the craft itself as a as the metaphor for trying to tell that story yeah cheers to that what cheese makes its way onto your pizza? Is it the obvious? Is it mozzarella? I've been dying to ask this all the whole time. Sorry. You can't go wrong with mozzarella because it's, you know, it's, I mean, there's a reason why it's used so much. It's, it's, it's easy to make number one. Um, and it's, uh, whether it's the fresh mozzarella or the, you know, sort of the low moisture aged mozzarella that comes in the bag shredded and all that, because it melts so well, it's a good melting cheese. It doesn't have a lot of flavor. It's, 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 in fact, I, I prefer using something like uh, provolone or fontina because they're much more complex in flavor. But they're not. Um, I think provolone might fall under the one of them falls under the pasta filata category of cheese, yeah. and the other one falls under the soft, you know, medium soft cheese. But they're. 
both of them have more fermentation time and as a result, more flavor development. But, but mozzarella is a great sort of, it's kind of like the vanilla ice cream of cheeses for pizza. It, it works. It's creamy. It's cheesy. It's, you know, it, it has a great uh, stretch to it. And then if you want more complexity, you can go for, start on the other end of the spectrum and go with the dry aged cheeses, like uh, whether it's, you know, sort of the Parmesan style or the, um, uh, uh, the, the the sheep's milk style, you know, uh, you can you can get the the salty umami flavors more from the dry aged cheeses, and again, just finding the right balance, and then everything in between, whether it's you know whether it's a Swiss cheese uh, uh, or like uh, like uh, Joe and I tomorrow, I'm excited because Joe, you're going to come on my podcast tomorrow, and we're going to talk about cheese, and we're going to specifically yeah. focus on Swiss cheeses. And so well, I'm going to learn as much as I can from you about about the different styles of Swiss cheese. But there's not one kind of Swiss cheese, right? There's there's many sty- types of Swiss cheese that fall under that sort of general category of I don't know what is is it Alpine? Is that the so so? Yeah, there's lots. Those cheeses certainly could work on a pizza. There's certainly pizzas of the world that are built around those. Um, and, and for mozzarella, though, like if you just look at the mozzarella category or mozzarella or fior di latte buffalo mozzarella yeah. you got the you got the you got the low moisture the whole milk the low moisture and the shred and then you have your fresh mozzarella in brine you have your salted rolled uh saran wrappy one and then yeah. you have and then you have then you have mozzarella curd i've put just mozzarella curd on a pizza i love and it, mozzarella and it, curd. Yeah. And it didn't bleed out all the, the extra water it was nice and uh, you know and i adjusted it with salt so what out of that kind of grouping though what what, what do you think you'd reach for well, I like I like what you said. I I'm a big fan of uh, using curds on cheese like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, it has a different texture. It's a little more chewy, a little more rubbery, you know. And but but it, but it's wonderful. And um, and so I think you know we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more people just buying cheese curds. And instead of uh, because like if you go to a place like Pizzeria Bianco that we spoke of earlier, mm-hmm. he starts each day aside from making his dough. And usually uh, Chris Bianco's brother makes the dough. And it's aging. While it's aging, Chris and his team are making cheese. They're taking cheese curds, adding mm-hmm. hot water to it. A lot of pizzerias are doing this now and making their own in-house uh, mozzarella cheese, a few de latte from, from cow's mm-hmm. milk cheese. And so the, and the way you make it is you pour hot water over it and you kind of like get in there with it and knead it and you squeeze it and everything. And it starts to melt and it, it, it uh, extrudes some of the moisture that's in the cheese itself. And you get this long, silky cheese that you can form into a dough into a little ball like a like mm-hmm. a softball so so you're taking the exact same ingredients and just reformulating them into something that can later be used you know it, it's changed enough so that it can be shredded and you do all sorts of stuff with it um but it starts with the curd and so and the and and basically you can use cheddar curds you can use um you know mozzarella curds they're they're all they're just less complex in flavor, but they're fun and easy to work with and they have their own textures. So I like that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then the other uh, styles of mozzarella, like, like one of the big issues is should I use full fat mozzarella made with whole milk or should I use um, partially skimmed mozzarella? Mm-hmm. And, um, and what's the pros and cons of that with the, the, um, the full fat mozzarella, of course, tastes better because fat, makes everything taste better. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's wonderful. But of course, then you get a little oily pizza and and some people don't like that. They don't want to have to take a paper towel and sop up any oil that's coming off the top of their pizza. Um, but the other thing is that when you have a full fat pizza, um, full fat mozzarella, 
uh, the cheese doesn't brown up as quickly. It doesn't get that golden caramelized quality that you get from a, a lower fat mozzarella. So the so a lot of pizzerias use either uh, exclusively uh, what they call uh, uh, I think they call it part skim or low fat mozzarella, part maybe I'll say part skim milk, or they'll use a blend of full fat and low fat cheeses because they get a more golden caramelization on the cheese. So these are like again nuanced choices that each pizza maker being the craftsperson that he or she is. And speaking of he or she, there's a lot more women now stepping to the helm and becoming, you know, well-known and famous as pizza makers. That whole category is exploding as well. Uh, But it's all about the craft. And I think that's what's drawing people is that within the simplicity of making pizza, there's a tremendous amount of choices that are craft driven that can make the difference between a good pizza and a great or memorable pizza. And that's that's what's driving the movement is people don't want to just make an everyday pizza. They're not into in the game just to make money. They they want to make money, but they're not just there to make money. They're there to make a mark to become to become the next Pizzeria Bianco or the next Dan Richard. They want to mm. be the next big name in the thing. And they and they enter competitions. They go to Italy and compete against the Italians. I mean, it's the whole the whole movement of artisan pizza is being driven by the fact that people are searching to make pizzas that that people can obsess over and because they're obsessed with the pizza making themselves they want their customers to be just as obsessed about eating them yeah peter that's that's so much information there i mean i have like so much i want to ask you but i like we're almost at the end of our show i know we didn't get to pizza ovens we didn't talk about white pizza joe what were you gonna say i think you had something else you were gonna mention just now oh i mean i've just I'm just saying I want to eat it all and and the and just just thinking of cheeses I mean uh it's and it's endless on um, what can really be. I, I the word the word poutine pizza even popped in my head thinking yes. like of uh, of cheese curds and like yes. gravy and I mean just just pizza could just be so many things especially when it involves uh, you know, delicious cheeses. I think that would be uh, a really cool pizza, Joe. Is a poutine a poutine pizza would be would that be cool or what? Oh my god, I think so. I mean it'd be yeah. something different, but I mean I mean if they can have buffalo chicken you can have pizza. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, you could. Yeah, I just the other day, I'm, I'm a true confession. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm going to confess. The other day, I had pineapple and ham pizza. Well, well the, you just what? opened another Pandora's box, which which I, I was going to bring it up earlier. But I was going to say, you know, that's that's, you know, a category that, well, you can get into some serious, you know, philosophical debates with people over. But I don't think that's really debatable. I think that people who say that, that it's an abomination to put pineapple on a pizza are wrong. They're just dead wrong mm-hmm. because it violates the flavor rule. And so that, so that's, I can, the criteria is that simple is what's wrong with making a pizza that tastes great just because it's not what you would get in Italy. And I think that mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's not, I don't, you know, I, I think it's a pointless argument, but it's a fun argument to have because yeah. people feel so passionate about it, but it's kind of, they're kind of irrational about it. It has nothing to do with, with their understanding. The crust was great. It was crispy. It was it's it's one of my favorite northern New Jersey spots. It's been around since the '60s, and yeah, that's one of the varieties they make. But they've for been making it who, since they've been making it since the early '80s, whenever that trend started. Or well, for 70s. people who are opposed to it, it's 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 an emotional opposition. It's not a it's not based in culinary you know uh, knowledge. It's based on an emotional thing of that. That's not how they. That's not how I grew up with it. That's that would be you know my grandmother would roll over in her grave, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But the guy who came up with it was not. Hawaiian. He was 
he was a, a restaurant owner in Canada who recognized that that um, the Chinese he, he loved Chinese food and you know think about like sweet and sour pork and things like that or you know uh, uh, how much pineapple is used in in Asian cooking and he said there's something about that combination of savory meats and and fruits like pineapple that work together to create a whole other kind of flavor synergy. And so he came up with that idea and he called it a Hawaiian pizza because of the pineapple in it, not because he was Hawaiian. And, um, and so of course it took on a life of its own, but it, it's based in a true culinary principle, which is the, the, the use of contrasting flavors to create a new flavor experience in your palate, you know, based on how those flavors contrast with each other. So I, let, how about if we save that conversation for the next time? Because I'd love to come back sure. with you guys yeah. in the future if you'll have me back. Absolutely. And we can go into some of the things we didn't cover this time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love I how love polarizing pizza is. And um, I will just say, long live the flavor rule, Peter. Thank you so much for that. That's an amen to that. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Um, and, uh, All right. Yeah. Flavor rule rules. Exactly. And, and Sarah, since you have, you have the book in front of you, do you, do you remember the 11th? Do you remember the 11th commandment of the 10? I had 10 commandments of pizza. And then on the last page, I have the 11th commandment. Oh, my goodness. No, I, I didn't study that hard. Okay, so what is it? <laughs> the 11th commandment is, let me see. I, it's so funny. Now, as I ask you the question, my mind just went blank. Uh, the 11th commandment is, maybe it's, it's more. Oh, here it is. It's more about the quest than it is about the pizza. And the quest never ends. There you go. Mm. It never ends. It, it keeps on. It's infinite. I do feel like that. I'm always on the hunt. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, thank, thank you, Peter, for coming the on the pizza. show today. This was a hoot. Joe and I had so much fun. We were really looking forward to this. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it as well. Yeah. And, and I'm looking forward to, to, to meeting with Joe. We're going we're gonna to continue the conversation on, on the Pizza Quest side. And uh, and maybe we can just bounce back and forth on each other's shows from time to time. That that sounds Looking great. Forward to it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to tell the listeners where to find you now. So thank you, guys. Please follow Peter on Instagram at Pizza Questing, or go to his website fornobravo.com/pizzaquest. Follow us at Cutting the Curd and myself at Kara Warren. You can follow Joe at Sting Chef. And uh, please listen, subscribe to Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, don't forget to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It might help widen our audience. Awesome. All right, guys. Enjoy. Thanks. And eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.